Welcome to the Play On Podcast. My name is Frank Hans, and I am your host for this week's episode. I'm a director and dramaturg and am back at Utah Shakespeare Festival this season as the Flockman Fellow in Dramaturgy. I am also assistant director to Brian Vaughn on Henry IV Part II. I am honored to be one of the voices here on the podcast and am thrilled that you're joining us today. Today we are fortunate to sit down with Sharon Ott. Sharon is directing this season's production of King Lear. In 2010, Sharon directed a marvelous production of The Merchant of Venice, and we are excited to have her back this season. Sharon has been involved in the world of theater for many years. She started her career in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she worked on and won an Obie Award with the experimental theater ensemble, Theater X. She has been a resident director at the Milwaukee Repertory Theater, artistic director at Seattle Repertory Theater, and artistic director at Berkeley Repertory Theater. In 1997, while Sharon was artistic director at Berkeley Rep, the theater received the Outstanding Regional Theater Tony Award. Sharon currently teaches at the Savannah College of Art and Design and serves as the artistic director for their performing arts department. Sharon, welcome. It's great to have you here. I guess I'd like to start by asking you about your experience at the festival and your time here. You were here in 2010 with The Merchant of Venice. You've directed all over the country in different theaters. I'm just wondering, what drew you here and what's brought you back? Well, uh, I think what drew me here was the opportunity to work in an outdoor setting, which when I, when I directed Merchant, I had never directed outdoors before. So I had direct. I think that was the... I've direct, this is my ninth Shakespeare, and I think Merchant was my sixth. So I had directed a fair amount of Shakespeare, but I'd never been able to do it outdoors. So wanted to have that experience. And also, uh, it was right when I was making the transition from being an artistic director to being a professor at Savannah College of Art and Design. So I was interested in working in general with theaters around the country where younger actors could be employed. And uh, Kathleen Conlon, actually, was the... Kathleen and Scott were the two people who reached out to me. And I knew Kathleen through her academic associations. And I, for for those two reasons, besides the fact that it was Merchant of Venice and that was such a great challenge, and the fact that we immediately talked about Tony Amendola playing Shylock. And Tony and I have worked together for many, many years. So that was the fourth Shakespeare we had done together. So... It was all those things were exciting. That's what brought me here. Let's talk a little bit about your relationship with Tony. You've worked with him in different places over a long period of time. Yeah, I hate to like give a date how long ago, but it's <laughs> he was actually the reason I became interested in Berkeley Rep because John Dillon, I was in Milwaukee at the time where Brian Vaughn, of course, has spent a fair amount of time before Brian was there. But um, John Dillon, who was the artistic director, directed a production of American Buffalo that was co-produced with Berkeley Rep. And Tony played Teach. And I remember just being blown away by his acting. And I asked John if the other actors at Berkeley Rep were as good as Tony was. He said, yeah, that's a very good company out there. And I think they're going to be looking for an artistic director. So that was the first connection. And then when I became artistic director there, Tony was a member of the company and I don't know how many productions we did together, but a great many. But he played Leontes for me in The Winter's Tale, uh, a fantastic Malvolio in Twelfth Night, absolutely one of the best I've ever seen, uh, and many, many other roles, contemporary roles. 
So we've known each other at least for, mm, I want to say 30 years, something like that. <laughs> so how has that relationship affected your work on King Lear in this production and on Tony's interpretation of King Lear? Well, I know him very well as an actor. I, uh, I'm just very familiar with with his approach to things and really think he is one of the most uh, rigorous actors I know in terms of his intellectual approach and his technique and he never stops looking for new things in the text. Uh, his his actual text itself is an amazing, I'm taking pictures of it for my students with my iPhone, of his script just yeah. to show them the kind of preparation that a really good actor does and the kind of continual questioning of every single moment. So I respect him very much, and I think he respects me. So we're able to, we've developed a kind of shorthand. And also, we have an active email conversation. We did before we started. We did during the design process, during the cutting. You know, I'm very comfortable with him. So I'm, I'm able to say, what do you think of this? And I sent him the proposed, my first idea of the script before I even sent you, you know, because I value his opinion. And even now... You know, you may not be seeing me give him many notes because we, we meet all the time and continue our sidebar conversations. So I'm just very, very comfortable with him and, and trust his judgment and know that when he has an issue with something, it's actually because there is an issue. <laughs> yeah. And if I've missed it, he's caught it. So it's great to have that kind of familiarity. And I also know, you know, a couple of the other actors in the cast I know very well too, David Pichette, who plays the fool, although I haven't worked with him, I've produced him as artistic director at Seattle Rep, so I know his work very well, and also know his brain. And Tyler Pierce, who plays Edgar. Uh, Brian and David knew of him, but I had mentioned him for that role because I worked with him at Berkeley Rep as well. So it's nice to have people in the group. And of course, Kelly Rogers, who plays Cordelia, is one of my former students. So I've known her since she was a freshman from North Carolina, having never done any Shakespeare. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what your inspirations or approaches are for this production, and how did you arrive at that? Uh, I think my first way into this play was really in the scholarship about the era when it was written, and thinking about it as this kind of play that is a cusp play between the Elizabethan and Jacobean eras and really thinking about the Jack, the new energy that was coming into uh, England with King James in terms of Machiavelli and a different approach to the world. So starting to see the play as, as the kind of interesting, not war, but dialogue between these two very different ways of being that were happening at the time, that was one crucial thing, I think, that guided me through my editing of the play and thinking about how to cast it, thinking about the visuals. Uh, and then, speaking of the visuals, I, I was trying to think of a way to bring a contemporary feel to it while keeping it in the tradition of the Adams Theater, because it is the last year in the Adams, and it's a lovely space, and it has a very particular architecture that you can't really deny. So the notion of, you know, a Lear in business suits, for instance, is just, I don't, I don't like those anyway, but it, it really wouldn't fly in that space. So I was thinking, okay, what, what kind of approach can we use where it, 
where it feels ancient, but it also feels modern. And uh, lo and behold, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. <laughs> so actually watching it one night, I was kind of going, wait a minute. <laughs> this feels both ancient and modern at the same time. So what is there about that visual approach to the world of that story that, that I can translate? So there are, there, that was very helpful in terms of a soundscape for the play, which has a bit of a modernist edge. We're using the Icelandic group Sigur Rós, who have also composed a lot of the Game of Thrones music as an inspiration. And it's, much, it's, it's got a kind of combination of modern, industrialized almost sound with, a, with an ancient sort of Icelandic Viking feel. So that works, and, and just the sort of general visual aesthetic that we were able to pull from Game of Thrones helps, I think, keep us straddling both a very modern sensibility and a very ancient world at the same time. You have a space like the Adams that really allows you to pick up on that, too. Yeah, move, moves in and out of doors and has this amazing and interesting uh, loss of focus as to true place as it goes on. You know, I think in the beginning of the play, you know where you are. Uh, it's clear where you are, and it's clear where you are for maybe the first five or six scenes, and then it starts to become, he's less interested in that. As Lear is thrown out into the natural world, it's, it's almost as if we don't care where we are from there on. Uh, and the Adams works very well for that. You can, you, you can not care where you are easily in that space, and it just goes to some wonderful world of spoken text and imagined place. Absolutely. You also talked about the idea of King Lear sort of straddling these different historical mm -hmm. periods. Some scholars have talked about Lear as Shakespeare's most contemporary play mm -hmm. in terms of how it sounds, in terms of its kind of dramatic approach. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your assessment of of. Lear as a contemporary work? Well, I think, you know, going back to the Elizabethan Jacobean, the Jacobean sensibility is in many ways the beginning of a modern sensibility because it is the beginning of an existential viewpoint. You know, we're here. We're here just not because of divine providence, but we're just here, and we're here to make the most of what we can of our life. Um, and so that, I think, in in King Lear moves into... A sensibility with Gloucester and Lear and Edgar out on the heath that that really almost makes it all the way to Samuel Beckett in terms of an existential sense of the world, uh, way ahead of his time. But those scenes out there could be a Beckett play. Absolutely, they feel like it. the The combination of of the kind of horror and humor of should I jump off this cliff and it isn't really a cliff. It's so similar to Godot with, you know, hanging yourself on the tree. And it feels so absolutely kiss and cousin that it's hard to believe there's as, as many hundreds of years. 350 years separating these, these plays. plays. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he was, uh, Shakespeare was just leaping way ahead of his time in terms of what he was imagining. Uh, and it does, it, you don't have to push it or conceptualize it at all to feel that contemporary sensibility. Even, I mean, those are the most famous scenes that do that, but even at the end with, with Edmund's, you know, the wheels come full circle, I am here, that's just 
that's an existential moment. And even Edgar at the end, which has a wonderful kind of combination of the old Elizabethan, let's wrap it up, and a much more modern feel of there is no wrap up. We're just going to feel the way we feel. Uh, and those of us who are young enough are going to have to live on. That is very modern as well. So it doesn't end the way a lot of Shakespeare's end at all. <laughs> yeah. No spoilers, but that's <laughs> but that is very true. <laughs> so you're getting we're getting close to the tech and dress rehearsal time, but we've been with this show now and and with the cast for a few weeks and I'm wondering um you've been with the show for a few months now. Just if you could talk about what discoveries you've made about this play throughout the process of working on it, what you've learned or what you've been surprised by in getting deeper and deeper into it. Well, I'm surprised by the humor. I think the play actually has humor. Uh, It's dark humor, that is true. But there there are moments that are funny, and some of them are, it's very Jacobean, are in the worst places, you know, where it's true horror is going on, but there's a moment of kind of, laughter and that's surprising and I've seen this play a lot and I've actually never felt that in watching it so I'm hoping that can come across as we perform it um that's surprising and then I think I'm quite surprised by the way the sisters are evolving in our production talk Uh, a little bit about that well they're always it's always interesting and of course as a woman directing this play uh I'm paying particular attention to that because with Regan and Goneril I've never thought of them as starting out as monsters never ever and always thought of I have a sister I have one sister and although my father was not King Lear there were uh, and I'm not Goneril I'm the eldest sister thank god I'm not Goneril um there were there are things I can relate to as a daughter uh, who cared for an aging father, he's passed away now, and he was also a very powerful man with a terrible sense of uh, temper. You know, he would actually send his office, he was uh, in president of a small steel company, and I worked for him for a period of time, and I watched his entire office scatter into the various restrooms once when he got mad. Wow. So he had a terrible temper, you didn't want to go against him, and a somewhat erratic nature as he aged. So I've always felt with those two sisters that in the beginning they they deal with their father out of practicality. They they are they're not necessarily they don't know where they're going to wind up as human beings and they both do wind up in a fairly awful place. They do actually commit terrible deeds by the end and are quite evil. But they don't start out that way. They start out in true Jacobean fashion working their way very practically through a difficult situation or what they perceive as a difficult situation. And so I think we're bringing that across very clearly. Melinda and Saran, our two Regan and Goneril and Regans, respectively, have very different temperaments. And we're also, we focused a lot on the middle sister, Regan, because she can get lost often. You know, Goneril is perhaps the more strongly written of the two. And I think we're really doing quite a good job with with Regan of making it clear her middle sister issues that drive her in certain ways. And then with Cordelia, um, I had actually first mentioned Kelly Rogers, my former student, as a Regan possibility. 
And David and Brian had seen her audition for several years and had been interested in her. And they, when we got around to casting, they said, why not Cordelia? And I kicked myself because as a woman, I should always be thinking of the strongest casting choices. But I had never seen Cordelia. I have to admit that I was had a more conventional Cordelia in my mind as a more a softer person maybe and a little more uh, of an ingenue. And Kelly, although she's quite young, she's in her mid-twenties, is a budding leading lady of great strength. And when David and Brian said that, I thought, well, that's really interesting. I can't believe I hadn't thought of that. So our Cordelia is much stronger than we usually see her portrayed. Somebody who's fully capable of leading the French army, which she does in the play. And uh, it's just quite a different interpretation. And her interaction with her older sisters is different because she's equally strong, uh, which isn't usually the way that character comes across. So I'm very excited about that and have been sort of continually surprised from the casting through the way it's worked out in the script. So as you think about audiences encountering this production, what what do you hope that people will be thinking about or talking about after they see this show? Well, I, I talked to, uh, I'm going to forget the reporter's name, but a wonderful reporter from the Las Vegas Journal, one of the papers, and she asked me that question. And one of the things I hope is that people are thrilled, that they're, that it's thrilling, and that it it comes across as not feeling like a long, hard, difficult slog of a play. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thrilled right now. We're, we're going into tech, and right now, of the three Adam shows, ours is running the fastest, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. That will not wind up that way, I don't think. But even for a moment to think that King Lear is playing faster than Taming of the Shrew and Henry IV Part Two is, right. is really wonderful. <laughs> but I am interested in it playing, it may be that Game of Thrones influence, in it playing as with a kind of adventure, swashbuckling energy to motor it so that it doesn't feel like, oh my gosh, we're, we're in for a long... In, and even the most, the parts of the play that are truly, you know, about issues of mortality, about the deepest core of our being, to me, they're so beautifully expressed, and Tony's such a wonderful actor, that it's thrilling to think that humanity is capable of facing, you know, looking death, <laughs> the process of dying, the process of losing everything, losing Everything you had, your job, he's no longer a king, your power, your daughters, at least he thinks for a while all three are gone, your sanity, your physical, everything, everything, and yet be able to express with such dignity and such glorious poetry the, the, the essential nature of humanity as they, as they confront that. And I know you and I, you, you gave me a piece of research that was so interesting, an article that was written about the play, talking about how in our modern age, where you know we all resist getting old, the entire culture resists it through everything we can think of, products, surgery, <laughs> continued me, I'm 65, hiking, you know, riding horses, everything we can do not to realize that we're getting older. 
it's we do get older everybody does and everybody dies and so to think that that we can all face this communally through this beautiful work of art is thrilling rather than depressing well that was a wonderful place to wrap up thank you very much <laughs> thank you Thank you for catching this episode of the Play On Podcast. Be sure to catch our previous episodes, including last week's interview with Nano Taggart and J.R. Sullivan, director for the 2015 production of Amadeus. The summer season is in full swing. We will be releasing episodes each week with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from the 2015 season. Next week, we will be privileged to hear from Brad Carroll, director of our production, the classic Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, South Pacific. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through your computer or mobile device. Search for Utah Shakespeare Festival Play On Podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you've been to the festival's website, bard.org, recently, you've probably noticed things are a little bit different. You can now locate the podcast on our website by clicking on the news heading at the top of the festival, bard.org homepage. <laughs>